Chapter 4, verses 18 through 31 of Commentary on St. Paul's Epistle to the Galatians. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eric Longman. Commentary on St. Paul's Epistle to the Galatians by Martin Luther. Translated by Theodore Grebner. Chapter 4, verse 18. But it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing, and not only when I am present with you. When I was present with you, you loved me, although I preached the gospel to you in the infirmity of my flesh. The fact that I am now absent from you ought not to change your attitude towards me. Although I am absent in the flesh, I am with you in spirit and in my doctrine, which you ought to retain by all means, because through it you received the Holy Spirit. Verse 19. My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. With every single word, the Apostle seeks to regain the confidence of the Galatians. He now calls them lovingly his little children. He adds the simile, of whom I travail in birth again. As parents reproduce their physical characteristics in their children, so the apostles reproduced their faith in the hearts of the hearers until Christ was formed in them. A person has the form of Christ when he believes in Christ to the exclusion of everything else. This faith in Christ is engendered by the gospel, as the apostle declares in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15, in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. And in 2 Corinthians 3, 3, Ye are the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. The word of God, falling from the lips of the apostle or minister, enters into the heart of the hearer. The Holy Ghost impregnates the word so that it brings forth the fruit of faith. In this manner, every Christian pastor is a spiritual father who forms Christ in the hearts of his hearers. At the same time, Paul indicts the false apostles. He says, I have begotten you Galatians through the gospel, giving you the form of Christ, but these false apostles are giving you a new form, the form of Moses. Note the apostle does not say, of whom I travail in birth again until I be formed in you, but until Christ be formed in you. The false apostles had torn the form of Christ out of the hearts of the Galatians and substituted their own form. Paul endeavors to reform them, or rather, reform Christ in them. Verse 20, I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice. A common saying has it that a letter is a dead messenger. Something is lacking in all writing. You can never be sure how the written page will affect the reader because his mood, his circumstances, his affections are so changeable. It is different with the spoken word. If it is harsh and ill-timed, it can always be remodeled. No wonder the apostle expresses the wish that he could speak to the Galatians in person. He could change his voice according to their attitude. If he saw that they were repentant, he could soften the tone of his voice. If he saw that they were stubborn, he could speak to them more earnestly. 
This way he did not know how to deal with them by letter. If his epistle is too severe, it will do more damage than good. If it is too gentle, it will not correct conditions. But if he could be with them in person, he could change his voice as the occasion demanded. Verse 20. For I stand in doubt of you. I do not know how to take you. I do not know how to approach you by letter. In order to make sure that he leaves no stone unturned in his effort to recall them to the gospel of Christ, he chides, entreats, praises, and blames the Galatians, trying every way to hit the right note and tone of voice. Verse 21. Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do ye not hear the law? Here Paul would have closed his epistle, because he did not know what else to say. He wishes he could see the Galatians in person and straighten out their difficulties. But he is not sure whether the Galatians have fully understood the difference between the gospel and the law. To make sure, he introduces another illustration. He knows people like illustrations and stories. He knows that Christ himself made ample use of parables. Paul is an expert at allegories. They are dangerous things. Unless a person has a thorough knowledge of Christian doctrine, he had better leave allegories alone. The allegory which Paul is about to bring is taken from the book of Genesis, which he calls the Law. True, that book contains no mention of the Law. Paul simply follows the custom of the Jews who included the first book of Moses in the collective term Law. Jesus even included the Psalms. Verses 22 and 23 For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. This is Paul's allegory. Abraham had two sons, Ishmael by Hagar and Isaac by Sarah. They were both the true sons of Abraham, with this difference, that Ishmael was born after the flesh, i.e., without the commandment and promise of God, while Isaac was born according to the promise. With the permission of Sarah, Abraham took Hagar, Sarah's bondwoman, to wife. Sarah knew that God had promised to make her husband Abraham the father of a nation, and she hoped that she would be the mother of this promised nation. But with the passage of the years, her hope died out. In order that the promise of God should not be annulled by her barrenness, this holy woman resigned her right and honor to her maid. This was no easy thing for her to do. She abased herself. She thought, God is no liar. What he has promised he will perform. But perhaps God does not want me to be the mother of Abraham's posterity. Perhaps he prefers Hagar for the honor. Ishmael was thus born without a special word or promise of God at the mere request of Sarah. God did not command Abraham to take Hagar, nor did God promise to bless the coalition. It is evident that Ishmael was the son of Abraham after the flesh and not after the promise. In the ninth chapter of the Epistle to the Romans, St. Paul advances the same argument which he amplifies into an allegory in writing to the Galatians. There he argues that all the children of Abraham 
are not the children of God. For Abraham had two kinds of children, children born of the promise, like Isaac, and other children born without the promise, as Ishmael. With this argument, Paul squelched the proud Jews who gloried that they were the children of God because they were the seed and the children of Abraham. Paul makes it clear enough that it takes more than an Abrahamic pedigree to be a child of God. To be a child of God requires faith in Christ. Verse 24. Which things are an allegory? Allegories are not very convincing, but like pictures they visualize a matter. If Paul had not brought in advance indisputable arguments for the righteousness of faith over against the righteousness of works, this allegory would do little good. Having first fortified his case with invincible arguments, he can afford to inject this allegory to add impressiveness and beauty to his presentation. Verses 24-25 For these are the two covenants, the one from the Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar. For this, Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. In this allegory, Abraham represents God. Abraham had two sons, born respectively of Hagar and Sarah. The two women represent the two testaments. The Old Testament is Mount Sinai, the bondwoman Hagar. The Arabians call Mount Sinai Agar, it may be that the similarity of these two names gave Paul his idea for this allegory. As Hagar bore Abraham a son who was not an heir but a servant, so Sinai, the law, the allegorical Hagar, bore God a carnal and servile people of the law without promise. The law has a promise, but it is a conditional promise, depending upon whether people fulfill the law. The Jews regarded the conditional promises of the law as if they were unconditional. When the prophets foretold the destruction of Jerusalem, the Jews stoned them as blasphemers of God. They never gave it any thought that there was a condition attached to the law which reads, If you keep the commandments, it shall be well with thee. Verse 25 And answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. A little while ago, Paul called Mount Sinai Hagar. He would now gladly make Jerusalem the Sarah of the New Testament, but he cannot. The earthly Jerusalem is not Sarah, but a part of Hagar. Hagar lives there in the home of the law, the temple, the priesthood, the ceremonies, and whatever else was ordained in the law at Mount Sinai. I would have been tempted to call Jerusalem Sarah, or the New Testament. I would have been pleased with this turn of the allegory. It goes to show that not everybody has the gift of allegory. Would you not think it perfectly proper to call Sinai Hagar and Jerusalem Sarah? True, Paul does call Sarah Jerusalem. But he has the spiritual and heavenly Jerusalem in mind, not the earthly Jerusalem. Sarah represents that spiritual Jerusalem where there is no law, but only the promise, and where the inhabitants are free. To show that the law has been quite abolished, the earthly Jerusalem was completely destroyed with all her ornaments, temples, and ceremonies. Verse 26 But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. The earthly Jerusalem, with its ordinances and laws, represents Hagar and her offspring. They are slaves to the law, sin, and death. 
But the heavenly Jerusalem is Sarah, the free woman. This heavenly Jerusalem is the church, that is to say, the number of all believers throughout the world, having one and the same gospel, one and the same faith in Christ, one and the same Holy Ghost, and the same sacraments. Do not mistake this one word, above, to refer to the triumphant church in heaven, but to the militant church on earth. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, the apostle uses the phrase, Our conversation is in heaven, not locally in heaven, but in spirit. When a believer accepts the heavenly gifts of the gospel, he is in heaven. So also in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ? Jerusalem here means the universal Christian church on earth. Sarah, the church, as the bride of Christ, bears free children who are not subject to the law. Verse 27, For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not. Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Paul quotes the allegorical prophecy of Isaiah to the effect that the mother of many children must die desolately, while the barren woman shall have an abundance of children, referring to Isaiah 54, verse 1. He applies this prophecy to Hagar and Sarah, to the law and the gospel. The law, as the husband of the fruitful woman, procreates many children. For men of all ages have had the idea that they are right when they follow after the law and outwardly perform its requirements. Although the law has many children, they are not free. They are slaves. As servants, they cannot have a share in the inheritance, but are driven from the house as Ishmael was cast out of the house of Abraham. In fact, the servants of the law are even now barred from the kingdom of light and liberty, for he that believeth not is condemned already, as it says in John 3.18. As the servants of the law, they remain under the curse of the law, under sin and death, under the power of the devil, and under the wrath and judgment of God. On the other hand, Sarah, the free church, seems barren. The gospel of the cross which the church proclaims does not have the appeal that the law has for men, and therefore it does not find many adherents. The church does not look prosperous. Unbelievers have always predicted the death of the church. The Jews were quite certain that the church would not long endure. They said to Paul, As concerning this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against, in Acts chapter 28, verse 22. No matter how barren and forsaken, how weak and desolate the church may seem, she alone is really fruitful before God. By the gospel she procreates an infinite number of children that are free heirs of everlasting life. The law, the old husband, is really dead. But not all people know it, or want to know it. They labor and bear the burden and the heat of the day, and bring forth many children, children that are bastards like themselves, children born to be put out of the house like Ishmael to perish forever. Accursed be that doctrine life and religion, which endeavors to obtain righteousness before God by the law and its creeds. The scholastics think that the judicial and ceremonial laws of Moses were abolished by the coming of Christ, but not the moral law. They are blind. 
When Paul declares that we are delivered from the curse of the law, he means the whole law, particularly the moral law, which more than the other laws accuses, curses, and condemns the conscience. The Ten Commandments have no right to condemn that conscience in which Jesus dwells, for Jesus has taken from the Ten Commandments the right and power to curse us. Not as if the conscience is now insensitive to the terrors of the law, but the law cannot drive the conscience to despair. There is now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 If the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. John 8.36 you will complain, but I'm not doing anything. That's right. You cannot do a thing to be delivered from the tyranny of the law. But listen to the glad tidings which the Holy Ghost brings to you in the words of the prophet. Rejoice, thou barren. As Christ is greater than the law, so much more excellent is the righteousness of Christ than the righteousness of the law. In one more respect, the law has been abolished. The civil laws of Moses do not concern us, and should not be put back in force. That does not mean that we are exempt from obedience to the civil laws under which we live. On the contrary, the gospel commands Christians to obey government not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. That's Romans 13.5. Neither do the ordinances of Moses or those of the Pope concern us. But because life cannot go on without some ordinances, the gospel permits regulations to be made in the church in regard to special days, times, places, etc., in order that the people may know upon what day, at what hour, and in what place to assemble for the word of God. Such directions are desirable that all things be done decently and in order. 1 Corinthians 14.40 These directions may be changed or omitted altogether, as long as no offense is given to the weak. Paul, however, refers particularly to the abolition of the moral law. If faith alone in Christ justifies, then the whole law is abolished without exception. And this the apostle proves by the testimony of Isaiah, who bids the barren to rejoice because she will have many children, whereas she that has a husband and many children will be forsaken. Isaiah calls the church barren, because her children are born without effort by the word of faith through the Spirit of God. It is a matter of birth, not of exertion. The believer, too, works, but not in an effort to become a son and an heir of God. He is that before he goes to work. He is born a son and an heir. He works for the glory of God and the welfare of his fellow men. Verse 28. Now we, brethren as Isaac was, are the children of promise. The Jews claimed to be the children of God because they were the children of Abraham. Jesus answered them, John eight thirty nine and 40, If ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. But now ye seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth. And in verse 42, If God were your father, ye would love me. In other words, you are not the children of God. If you were, you would know and love me. Brothers born and living together in the same house recognize each other. You do not recognize me. You are of your father, the devil. We are not like these Jews, the children of the bondwoman, the law, who were cast out of the house by Jesus. We are children of the promise, like Isaac, born of grace and faith unto an everlasting inheritance.
Verse 29. But as that he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit, even so it is now. This is a cheering thought. We who are born of the gospel and live in Christ and rejoice in our inheritance have Ishmael for our enemy. The children of the law will always persecute the children of the gospel. This is our daily experience. Our opponents tell us that everything was at peace before the gospel was revived by us. Since then the whole world has been upset. People blame us and the gospel for everything, for the disobedience of subjects to their rulers, for wars, plagues and famines, for revolutions and every other evil that can be imagined. No wonder our opponents think they are doing God a favor by hating and persecuting us. Ishmael will persecute Isaac. We invite our opponents to tell us what good things attended the preaching of the gospel by the apostles. Did not the destruction of Jerusalem follow on the heels of the gospel? And how about the overthrow of the Roman Empire? Did not the whole world seethe with unrest as the gospel was preached in the whole world? We do not say that the gospel instigated these upheavals. The iniquity of man did it. Our opponents blame our doctrine for the present turmoil. But ours is a doctrine of grace and peace. It does not stir up trouble. Trouble starts when the people, the nations, and their rulers of the earth rage and take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, Psalm 2. But all their counsels shall be brought to naught. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision, Psalm 2, 4. Let them cry out against us as much as they like, we know that they are the cause of all their own troubles. As long as we preach Christ and confess Him to be our Savior, we must be content to be called vicious troublemakers. These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, so said the Jews of Paul and Silas, Acts seventeen six and 7. Of Paul they said, we have found this man a pestilent fellow, and a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. The Gentiles uttered similar complaints. These men do exceedingly trouble our city. This man Luther is also accused of being a pestilent fellow who troubles the papacy and the Roman Empire. If I would keep silent, all would be well, and the Pope would no more persecute me. The moment I open my mouth, the Pope begins to fume and to rage. It seems we must choose between Christ and the Pope. Let the Pope perish. Christ foresaw the reaction of the world to the gospel. He said, I am come to send fire on the earth, and what will I, if it be already kindled? Luke 12.49 Do not take the statement of our opponents seriously, that no good can come of the preaching of the gospel. What do they know? They would not recognize the fruits of the gospel if they saw them. At any rate, our opponents cannot accuse us of adultery, murder, theft, and such crimes. The worst they can say about us is that we have the gospel. What is wrong with the gospel? We teach that Christ, the Son of God, has redeemed us from sin and everlasting death. This is not our doctrine. It belongs to Christ. If there is anything wrong with it, it is not our fault. If they want to condemn Christ for being our Savior and Redeemer, that is their lookout. We are mere onlookers, watching to see who will win the victory, Christ or his opponents.
On one occasion, Jesus remarked, If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. John 15:19. In other words, I am the cause of all your troubles. I am the one for whose sake you are killed. If you did not confess my name, the world would not hate you. The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Christ takes all the blame. He says, You have not incurred the hatred and persecutions of the world. I have. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Verse 30. Nevertheless, what saith Scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. Sarah's demand that the bondwoman and her son be cast out of the house was undoubtedly a blow to Abraham. He felt sorry for his son Ishmael. The scripture explicitly states Abraham's grief in the words, And the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. Genesis 21.11 But God approved Sarah's action and said to Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of thy bondwoman. In all that Sarah hath said unto thee, hearken unto her voice, for in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Genesis 21.12 The Holy Ghost contemptuously calls the admirers of the law the children of the bondwoman. If you do not know your mother, I will tell you what kind of a woman she is. She is a slave, and you are slaves. You are slaves of the law, and therefore slaves of sin, death, and everlasting damnation. You are not fit to be heirs. You are put out of the house. This is the sentence which God pronounces upon the Ishmaelites, the Papists, and all others who trust in their own merits and persecute the Church of Christ. Because they are slaves and persecutors of the children of the free woman, they shall be cast out of the house of God forever. They shall have no inheritance with the children of the promise. This sentence stands forever. This sentence affects not only those popes, cardinals, bishops, and monks who were notoriously wicked and made their bellies their gods. It strikes also those who lived in all sincerity to please God and merit the forgiveness of their sins through a life of self-denial. Even these will be cast out, because they are children of the bondwoman. Our opponents do not defend their own moral delinquency. The better ones deplore and abhor it. But they defend and uphold their doctrine of works, which is of the devil. Our quarrel is not with those who live in manifest sins. Our quarrel is with those among them who think they live like angels, claiming that they do not only perform the Ten Commandments of God, but also the sayings of Christ, and many good works that God does not expect of them. We quarrel with them because they refuse to have Jesus' merit count alone for righteousness. St. Bernard was one of the best of the medieval saints. He lived a chaste and holy life, but when it came to dying, he did not trust in his chaste life for salvation. He prayed, I have lived a wicked life, but thou, Lord Jesus, hast to heaven to give unto me, first, because thou art the Son of God, secondly, because thou hast purchased heaven for me by thy suffering and death. Thou givest heaven to me not because I earned it, but because thou hast earned it for me. If any of the Romanists are saved, 
It is because they forget their good deeds and merits and feel like Paul, not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ. Philippians 3.9 Verse 31 So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. With this sentence, the Apostle Paul concludes his allegory of the barren church. This sentence forms a clear rejection of the righteousness of the law and a confirmation of the doctrine of justification. In the next chapter, Paul lays special stress upon the freedom which the children of the free woman enjoy. He treats of Christian liberty, the knowledge of which is very necessary. The liberty which Christ purchased for us is a bulwark to us in our battle against spiritual tyranny. Therefore we must carefully study this doctrine of Christian liberty, not only for the confirmation of the doctrine of justification, but also for the comfort and encouragement of those who are weak in faith. End of chapter 4. Commentary on St. Paul's Epistle to the Galatians. Recording by Eric Longman, Marietta, Georgia.